everyone, this is Tony Holbein from Growblox. You are listening to The Revenue Formula. In today's episode, we're talking with Robin Daniels. He's the Chief Business and Product Officer at LMS 365. And we're talking with him about what he has learned from two and a half IPOs, meaning Box, Metaport, and the point five is WeWork. Enjoy. Let's talk about my name change, you know, because I have changed my name. Oh, really? Yes, 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 yes. What did you change it from? Let's, let's, let's do the intro. And yeah. no, no, I think that's, that's, that's a much more interesting intro, actually. Yeah. So what happened there? <laughs> that's pretty simple. I got married. Ah, so the surname you changed. Yes. Ah, yes, yes. I was yes, like, yes. you changed your first name? No, 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 no. That, that would be bold, though. Yeah. No, 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 no. no but also, I... he got married and she was like, sorry, don't like. Mikkel Rasmus? You know? No. Yeah. So when, so when, I, so when I, uh, I did an interview with a journalist in June, right? And the first question, I think he was trying to catch me off guard. He was a Danish journalist. said, do you not like being Danish? Are you embarrassed of being Danish? I'm like, fucking <laughs> No. I'm, I'm, I'm always proud. I've been, even though I've lived abroad most of my career, I always tell people the first thing I am, I'm Danish. No, so when I met my wife and we fell in love and, uh, and then basically we were going to get married, right? And I thought to myself, well, I never had a close relationship with my dad. Okay, he wasn't really a big part of my life. The name itself, is I don't have a strong emotional connection to. I actually like her family better. And I thought, well, also being modern and progressive and Danish, I'm like, man, why should women always yeah. lose out in this whole like patriarchal way of thinking that you have to take my name? So I said, I'm going to take your name. So I took her last name. So I used to be Robin Gertson before. Uh, now I'm Robin Daniels. Yeah. So so nobody See, actually knows. But the beauty is nobody knows I'm Danish because it doesn't sound very Danish. Not my name. No, right? But I am, you know. No, so, yeah, yeah. I, it took some Sherlock Holmesing to figure out that okay, yeah, he is actually Danish. Like, exactly, exactly. I think I, I think I saw some picture of you in an, an apartment way, way back before you moved abroad for the first time. It was like okay, it's, it's the yeah. it's the the signature smile already there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the last place I lived before I moved to the U.S. Yeah. I, I know I've posted that picture a few times. <laughs> so if you haven't yeah. guessed it already, we have Robin Daniels here. Yeah, not um, not anymore. And yeah. um. He is actually Danish. We have kind of figured this one out as well. You, you currently are Chief Business and Product Officer at LMS365. LMS stands yes. for Learning Management System. That's right. right? Yeah. That's right. And, you know, previously you've been CMO at, I mean, everyone knows WeWork, I think. Uh, not everyone knows Metaport. Maybe kind of there's a mini intro there. But you also have worked at Box, at Salesforce, at LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Crazy stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, I had to take some of them out, otherwise half the episode... No, I'm joking. And, and the, the half IPO, yeah. funny, not funny, is obviously WeWork. Obviously, I think a lot of people, you know, obviously. I've kind of seen this drama. Uh, one is Metapod. Which one is the other one, actually? Box. Box. Yes. There you go. Crazy. I mean, so it's, it's so crazy with, with WeWork, right? I mean, I think everybody knows the story. That's well documented. But there's a lot of, of course, internal stuff that mm -hmm. people don't know that was happening. So... A week before we were actually supposed to go IPO, I was at NASDAQ with the team and the founders planning our IPO. Like, what's the party going to be like? Because it always happens very last minute, right? Yeah. I mean, of course, you have some plans for it, but then you go and like you check out the venue and you figure out what's the party going to look like, what, where's your branding going to go and all that stuff, right? So, I mean, I have pictures on my phone from like a week, maybe 10 days before where we're like planning. out so me and the, the creative team and the marketing team and then it all just kind of came crashing down. I mean, that's why it's like, when yeah. I say a half IPO, I mean, we were really close to, to doing it. It was actually this. more like a 
Point nine. Point nine. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I went through a lot of the pain of an IPO without getting any of the rewards from an yeah. IPO, unfortunately. But but then I mean, and this is you know when when you and I met in in, in a cafe previously, then almost what was it like twelve months to the day later? Yes, yes. You returned to the same spot. That's right. right. Two years. Two years later. Two years. <laughs> two, years two years later. So basically. Afterwards, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty brutal and at we were. It's not like any of us wanted it to end the way that it did, right? It's just it's just kind of we got dragged through the mud for for lots of good reasons. I've been documented, but yeah. so I took some time afterwards, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna just talk to as many cool companies as I can like get introduced to. So mm. I have a fairly strong network in the venture capital community, so I got introduced to a lot of companies. I actually have a whole list of all the companies I was kind of speaking to us for strategy help or go-to-market help or whatever it was, right? Mm. They all kind of wanted to kind of pick my brain. And I ended up getting closer to some of them and getting some job offers. And, and I have this list, and it's like I spoke to close to 100 companies in about six months or so. And who knew, it's like when you look back, who knew that the one I would have chosen, Matterport, ended up then going public, right? Some of the other ones you know, would have seemed more obvious choices as, as public contenders, and other ones just completely flamed out and yeah. disappeared, right? But so Matterport, we ended up going public about two years to the day later. So it was, it was so weird being back there. It was July in tw- mm. 2021. Very emotional, I gotta say. <laughs> I was I was really moved about it. It's like this idea that that making making it happen. You know, like it, it felt very surreal. So I was both emotional, both because it made it happen. It's a big moment in your career. Like I, I was there with the box uh, IPO, but. Um, I was not the CMO, so it wasn't like yeah. my me being yeah. up there. I was just kind of helping facilitate this, like as mm. one of the leaders. But me being there, like doing it, was really emotional. But it was also so that was one part part why it was so such a big moment for me. The second part was it was the first time I met anybody in the company. Yeah, because <laughs> I joined this company during COVID, so from day one I was remote, so I hadn't met anyone. So it was also like wow, uh, and it was only the leadership because it was still COVID times, mm-hmm. right? So. Uh, it was only the executive team that was there, but I met the executive team, the board, uh, and a few kind of like folks from my team who had come out to support like the mm. events people and so on. But it was also very emotional to like actually see people and hug mm. people and give them a high five and be like, wow, you exist. I've only seen you through a screen for the last year or so, right? Yeah. So that was, that was weird. And then it's just, you know, the, the, the fact that also the third thing was it felt like the world was coming back, you yeah. know, and it was, it was hard. I mean, COVID was hard for everyone. It was... For some, maybe easier. My son, he's a little bit of an introvert. He's like, oh, it was so great. For me, I found it super hard. Like just the isolation, not being able to see people, talk to people and so on. So it was an emotional time, but it was about two years after. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, you actually moved back from San Francisco to Denmark in yes. and around that time, right? Yeah. So it wasn't only the isolation, sitting alone at home working, but it was also the nine hours time shift. Yes, yes, um, yes. And, yeah. and then obviously if... If you're not from Denmark, you haven't been to Denmark, half of the year is basically in darkness. Oh, yeah. We <laughs> like, just talked like, about like how, right how cold it is. Yeah. And, it's like, um, oh. and, uh, and pretty much, I mean, you're, I don't know, when did you start working, working kind of with the, with the West Coast? I mean, it's like at like 6 p.m. they really go online? No, I mean, so how, did I, you, how did you I, I, do Earlier, that? earlier, because I had a global team, right? So, so we moved towards the end of 2020. So I joined in March 2020, right as COVID hit. So I started remotely. I was introduced to the whole team. Here's your new leader, new uh, chief marketing officer, Robin Daniels. And on Zoom, it was like very anticlimactic yeah. <laughs> way to start. But okay, that's fine. Uh, and I've always had global teams, just to be clear. I think many of us have mm-hmm. probably teams that are global. But it was just kind of a weird way to start. So got working. And then during that time, the first couple of months, we as a family decided to move to Denmark. We talked about it for a long time. But it always felt like when, how, what's the right time. We had a son in school. My wife had a yoga studio. 
I always felt like as a senior tech executive, like, what am I going to do in Denmark? Yes. I love Denmark as a country, amazing, but like, I didn't have that strong work connection there because I'd never worked here really. Mm. Uh, so we decided to make it go for it. I'm like, well, now I'm sitting at home working remotely with Matterport. I could do this from Denmark, right? Mm -hmm. So we moved, uh, but I had not anticipated how tough the time zone difference was. Nine hours is no joke. I mean, so my day would start around probably noon. So instead of me having mm -hmm. that date night with my wife and stuff like that, we would do brunch <laughs> date, dates. Yeah. We would do yeah. brunch dates probably a, t a couple of times a week. We would go find new spots in Copenhagen to have brunch. We love that mm -hmm. Denmark does brunch really well, if you haven't noticed, but uh, it, we do. And so my day would start around noon. I would start catching up with the UK and then my team in, in, the, in Singapore and in Asia. And then really the US would start coming online at West Coast. I would say around three or four yeah. uh, PM. And then I would stay up probably till I think one or two most days. Yeah. And, and it's again, if you stay up till two and you have an intense meeting with the team or your boss or whatever, it's not that like you can just go to sleep afterwards, yeah. right? So my, my, my whole rhythm got so screwed up and my, my habits got really unhealthy. Suddenly at midnight, again, you're, you're hungry, so you're snacking on food, some chips or some nuts or maybe a slice of pizza. And, and then maybe after work, you know, try to have a little glass of wine just to calm down. So it just becomes like an unhealthy way of, of living. And then your, your circadian rhythm was complete. My, my circadian rhythm was completely screwed up. Uh, and so having done that for about a year and a half, I mean, I just like, I was, I was really burned out. There was even a few times when we were doing um, executive level offsites. And again, I was the only one here uh, and the rest of the team was in California. So where we would stay up till about five or 6 a.m. in the morning. I mean, it's like going oh. out partying, but working, right? You're sitting yeah. there in front of a screen trying to stay awake, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> and be lucid and have a coherent thought, right? Well, your family is sleeping in the, next, in the room next door. It's just an odd way of living. So I was so happy uh, to not be doing that anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and I think back on the time, I mean, I'm very proud of the work that we did, the fact that we grew through a very tough time, took the company public, mm -hmm. that we rallied together. All these things are things to be proud of. But if I'm completely honest, it was pretty joyless. I mean, yeah. it's like, just again, I, I lacked the human connection. I lacked the connection with my team. I, I, I mean, again, we, we, got, we worked through a lot of hard issues as you do as, as a company in growth. But it not, it's not like uh, I've made like friends for life in many ways in, in the same way that I've done in some of the other companies. Again, there's some people on my team that we've stayed in touch with, but the fact that we never really got to like go for a coffee or go have a chat together or get, mm. get me, meet your family and so on, it just, it meant that it was a different level of connectivity. So even though that ended in, in with an IPO, which I'm again very proud of compared to WeWork, which kind of ended in disaster, I made some really close friends because we walked through fire together. I mean, mm. there was some hard times. And sometimes I think some of the strongest bonds comes from you doing really hard things together. Mm -hmm. Us showing up for each other every day when it was brutal, right? The, towards the end of that, that cycle anyway, right? So it's interesting just to reflect back. on, But it also gave me clarity about what gives me joy and energy in my life. So when I was thinking about coming back, you know, like, okay, I want to come back into and be an operator because I love being an operator if I was completely honest with myself, I had this realization back in probably March of 2023, I said, you know, if I'm completely honest, I don't love remote work every day. And so the idea of me taking a, another gig where I'm just sitting remotely by myself, it's just not for me. For some people, it's great. They're super effective. They can, they can work well for some personality types, for some jobs. But for me and what gives me joy, it's not something I want to do. I'm like, I'd rather go uh, be a barista than just sit by myself for 10 hours a day in front of a screen with no human connection. It's, yeah. just, it's, just, it's, just, it's just not for my style at all. Again, I do work from home probably 
two times a week because I when I need to do deep work or I have a lot of like online calls because I have a global team as well here. But I do like being able to go in and kind of see people. Yeah, it really yeah. gives me joy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost becoming a, a career development thing. Because, yeah, but, yeah. I, but I think it's yeah. so true. The whole like being really understanding what gives you energy in relation mm -hmm. to work is just such a critical. Yeah, yeah almost decision for you to make before finding the next gig right yeah, so no. um definitely respect that so first off i think we should dive a little bit deeper into matterport sure because it was like one of the you know hundreds uh, of options basically <laughs> can we start by just maybe you mm. laying out because i actually i'm not sure what matterport sure does yeah, 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 so yeah, let's yeah. just uh, share that with the listener yeah so i so matterport is basically a 3d solution that you can it's both software and hardware so basically they sell a camera a 3d camera but also a, a, a software platform that allows you to take a scan of a space this room or a whole house or a hotel or whatever and then be able to walk through it and then of course mark it up uh, so you could say you could use it for retail you could use it for tourism if you want to if you're a hotel and you want to showcase your beauty if you, you could lots of museums use it for virtual tours and so on so lots of different use cases i got first introduced to matterport when i was at WeWork because we actually we, oh, we yeah, ended up spending sense. we ended up we had you know about 800 locations i think at the peak when i was there roughly i think and we would spend a lot of time with people coming by our office and wanting a tour yeah. of the space right hey before i commit to a lease can i get a tour of the space and a lot of times, if you're a company, you don't just take the first space you go to, right? So you would go to one location here, then maybe you go visit five or 10 more, right? Like, let's see which one fits our style of company and so on, right? And we just figured out, well, what if we could just put it online and people could just kind of do virtual tours? And so the team did that, right? So we put, I, we, by the time I left, I think we had maybe half of our properties had Matterport tours, not all of them, because it takes a while and, mm. you know, time consuming to put them but we could easily see that it just cut down the amount of t real physical tours that we would have to give out because it's a time consuming thing when then you have to schedule it and usually when people come by to get a tour it's usually like uh depending on the size of the company but if you're a small company the ceo the cfo the mm -hmm. head of hr if it's a bigger company it's like the head of facilities mm -hmm. the it person for security all kinds of stuff so you, you spend a lot of time in, a, in a, any given day showcasing office space and we just figured there's got to be a better way, right? And so, so that's how we got introduced to Matt. But I didn't think more about ever like, oh, I'm going to join this company no, one no. day. Um, then, of course, I left Matterport. I was left, left WeWork. And then throughout my journey of just talking to companies, I got introduced to the CEO at Matterport. And we just kind of hit it off. And I loved kind of the vision of what they were building in terms of making every space in the world, not just commercial office space or residential space, more accessible and understandable, but actually make every space. And I'm like... It's actually a really beautiful vision. If you are, let's say you grew up poor in the slums of uh, Brazil, uh, what is the chances of you ever going and seeing the Louvre Museum, for example, or going and seeing some, some beautiful spaces around the world? Very little, Rob. But if we can bring them to you somehow through the magic of technology, we kind of give equal access and equal opportunity to everyone. That was, that was the vision I was fighting mm -hmm. for. And, you know, some of the spaces that got the most traction were like the pyramids of Egypt uh, yeah. and the tombs that we would kind of could be able to walk to that you'd never be able to go see or some of these uh, like really uh, sacred places around the world. We had done beautiful scans. And these are high resolution. It's not like a 3D picture. You're basically walking through it. Yeah. Um, and so I so the, the vision of, of, of the company was such that we want to make this accessible to everyone. And we want to figure out the way to unlock this so um, everyone can not just consume it but also do their own version of it so one of the the thinking behind it was we had this blocker 
um, I would say this barrier to entry that you had to buy an expensive camera to do so. You could either buy one that's a little cheaper maybe on Amazon, but it's not as good, or you could buy the one from us, which is like three, dollars $4,000 or so, depending on options you would get. But we said, what, what if we made it accessible to everybody who just has a phone in their pocket? An iPhone or an Android, the phone cameras nowadays are so good. Mm -hmm. What if we can train people that they can actually use this to make a 3D scan of their home, their apartment for redecoration or for letting people in to see their space or if they want to sell it? We actually had a lot of data that a home, and this is mostly U.S. data, a home that had a Matterport tour uh, would sell about 30% faster and about 20% higher, higher price mm -hmm. because it gives you the insight of what this space looks like. You can't hide anything because it's a full 3D tour. Sometimes when you're just seeing pictures, it's always taken from certain angles, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is this room in relation to that room? Is it right next to the bathroom? Or <laughs> I the, didn't see that hole in the yeah, wall I didn't see those exactly, photos. <laughs> exactly. It happens all the time, right? Yeah. So, so this way, there's, there's no hiding anything, yeah, right? Yeah. And I had a, a, a moment of truth was when I had a friend who I used to work with at WeWork. He had moved from New York to uh, Montana. And it was during COVID. And he said, I looked at this house online over a hundred times to figure out every part of it, only using Matterport. Uh, and that gave me the confidence to buy it. And I just thought, what a crazy thing. I mean, like 20 years ago, we were nervous about buying shoes online. Now you're buying a house online without yeah. ever having set foot in there because it gives you the confidence to do so. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so I joined the company um, and with the goal of, well, how are we going to then unlock this and bring more growth into the business, right? And so we, 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 there was a lot of, of course, engineering work that went behind the scenes of actually making this accessible on a phone and making it possible to do on a phone. It's not not easy to do so, uh, to stitch together images, create a, a full like 3D representation. Mm -hmm. But the, the team did brilliant work there. And then we launched it to the world. And the theory was always, let's see if we can get people to sign up and be motivated by this and so on. And we invested a decent amount in the launch of this. But in the first week of us launching it, we got more signups in the first week than we did in the first eight years of being in business. Mm. It was always the hope that this was going to unlock growth, but we'd never seen anything like it. And that momentum that we saw from that initial launch really spurred us towards an IPO. It gave us the confidence. Because when I first joined, on it, again, honestly, I thought we're maybe going to IPO two or three or four years or so. I thought it was going to be a longer journey. But the growth that we saw from that launch, the amount of people coming into our platform, a lot of them, again, freemium users who are never going to upgrade. But we also saw companies like Starbucks and Walgreens and others who came in and kind of used it as a try before they they buy. And then yeah. they would upgrade and buy maybe the bigger cameras or the bigger SaaS plans and so on, right? So it became the ultimate way of reducing friction. Mm -hmm. And and to me, I th when I think about growth, a lot of times when you look at a, a funnel or a flywheel, whatever method you use, so much of you getting to really predictable and stable and scalable growth is about finding the friction points and being able to remove them, whatever part of that. It could be the sign-up process, it could be the understanding process, the sales process, the negotiation process, how you price it. There's probably friction all over. The goal is to remove the friction from every part of that process mm. to make it easy to become a customer and use the product, of course. Mm. Yeah. I think that's pretty interesting because I was going to ask, like, you know, you mentioned the list of 100 companies mm -hmm. and, you know, funny enough, you chose the one that ended up IPOing. So I was like, well, what's wrong with all the other 99 companies? <laughs> what, you know, what choices did they not no, make? All, kind of all, did you... It's almost also the other way around. It's like, did you, you know, when when someone has two and a half, let's just let's round up, three, <laughs> three of those. <laughs> it's almost like, I mean, he must have figured something out, right? 
And then when, no, when he, just he, go, he went to Nasdaq already, he that's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> he just checked out the space. No, but kind of, and then you have this idea in your mind of like, oh, well, there was a list of a hundred and you picked yeah. the one yeah. and you know, obviously the list is hidden, right? Yeah. So we don't, we don't know. Everyone else maybe also went public. I don't yeah. know. Maybe, maybe that. Uh, but then the next question is like, Jesus, how did, how did he figure this out? Right. And listening to it, it's like, well, maybe it was just a visionary CEO and kind of, yeah. maybe that wasn't what it was, but was it, was there anything else that compelled you besides this? Hey, maybe, maybe I can work with these guys pretty well. Well, it, 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 certainly, I mean, I met a, a couple of the people there, right? It was right before COVID. So it was like, I was speak. I started speaking to them, I think it was January, 2020. Mm -hmm. And then I met CEO a bunch of times and then I met. CRO, CFO, and so on. And everyone I just kind of got along with. Um, but I also like the size of the company. We were like uh, about a Series D company, mm. about 300 people. I think we were about 40 million in ARR or something mm. about when I joined. I'm, can't, don't quote me exactly, but I'm rough, roughly there. So I always like when there's good product market. I've tried really big companies, the two biggest I've worked for. LinkedIn was about 15,000 people, and WeWork was about 15,000 at the peak of when, mm. when I was there. Uh, I'm sure both have changed since then, but mm. that was it. You know, Salesforce, when I left, was about 8,000 or so. Um, and so I've tried really big companies, and there are some beauties of being a big company. You get a lot of resources, and you get like lots of people who can do lots of stuff. But uh, And then I've tried really small companies. I've joined companies when I was like employee number eight. All right? I'm basically, even though I have a fancy title, I'm the first business hire, so you mm. kind of have to do everything. And I and I and I love getting my like rolling on my sleeves and getting my hands dirty and doing things. But I also like leadership. I like leading people and I like like motivating people and so on. And to me, that mid size is just a beautiful thing because you get to do a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. You get to both do a lot of things, right? There, there's I mean, there's no going on. You're you're only as good as how you motivate yourself to get shit done. But you also get to like lead a team and inspire them to do great work. Um, and then also, I think culturally, uh, if you come into into big of a company you're honestly mostly inheriting a culture that's already yeah. in existence. If you come in really early, you get to build the culture from scratch. When you come in at kind of mid-size, there's a little bit of foundation of culture for sure, right? But you also still get to really put your fingerprint on it and, and kind of chart a path forward. And when I thought back about some of the companies I've worked for, I really like that growth journey a lot. When there's product market fit mostly, right? Mm -hmm. That's not to say it's always perfect. Mm -hmm. um, you've got a good team there and you can optimize it move some people around, maybe uh, invest more in some people, maybe you find some some things that are not working, but you can kind of invest in that. Um, but really, kind of, you have a solution that that really solves, I think, to, to, to one of the two problems that I think it all comes down to. Usually a company either has a demand problem or an awareness problem, right? And, depend, and so much of your strategy starts with one of those. And it's never either or. It's never 100% this or 100%, but it's usually more one than the other. And if the the, the problem is that you have a company that nobody's just ever heard of, an awareness problem, then th that's my jam. I love going mm. in there and working on those kind of things, right? Because I'm, I feel like, okay, I'm not the best at everything in marketing, like lots of things that are, many people are better at, but I'm very good at storytelling. I'm very good at kind of category creation, bringing awareness to something. Um, and, and, and so knowing like when I saw Matterport, I'm like, the truth is nobody's ever heard of this company. Mm -hmm. And it's honestly, it's a little bit like this company I've, I'm joining now, LMS 365. It's an incredible company growing f over 50% year over year. Uh, we're just we're just about uh, 30 million in ARR now, right? More or less organically bootstrapped, which mm -hmm. is, is incredible. But most people has never, have never heard of that company. And I like that because that means that I can come in and there's a lot of things. So it's not just trying to build the engine, the demand engine, which is also important, don't get me wrong. But I like that journey. So for example, when I was at Box, when I first joined, 
I would say the, the biggest problem we had back then was that most people had not heard about us. Uh, they'd heard of Dropbox. But yeah, they're not, like, you mean yeah, Dropbox? Yeah, exactly. That, that, that was literally the, 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 the question that pisses, pissed us off in, endlessly, right? But it was like, oh, are you Dropbox? No, we're not Dropbox, we're Box. But the problem was most people had not heard. So we went on this huge strategic effort to really make sure that people had heard about us. Investment in analyst relations, in speaking gigs, in lots of thought leadership, lots of different things. And it worked really well. So by, you know, after a couple of years, we were like the number one in the Forrester Wave and the Gartner Magic Quadrant, lots of like great reviews online. But of course, it never stays static. Then over time, that turned into a demand problem. Suddenly, we had all these sales reps and we had all uh, like lots of leads coming in, but we weren't really closing them very effectively. Like, what are we not doing right? So then it turns more into sales enablement, having the right content at the right time, the right training for people the right assets and all, all the, lots of different things to solve that problem, right? But it was so interesting to, to observe. I mean, suddenly it's like, okay, well, now everybody is, knows us. Like it's getting turned from awareness to demand. Everyone knows us, but it's not really turning into quality demand. So mm-hmm. how do you fix that? Mm-hmm. Then, then the machine turns and has to fix something else. But I really like that, that storytelling journey, right? But to come back to, I mean, the, 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 the way I've been successful when I think about it, I mean, honestly... It's pretty simple. I'm, I'm a little. I'm, I've been doing this for a while now. To me, it's all about one thing. It's of surrounding myself with great people. Mm. I, I'm, I'm so clear about this. It's like, yes, I, I'm cert- there are certain things I'm good at. I think I'm good at motivating people, storytelling, communication. But I am only successful if I can surround myself with the best people. That's why I put so much effort into recruiting great people. I'm mean, even here at my new company, LMS365. I've been spending a lot of time recruiting people because I know it'll ultimately make the company much more successful. If I can get the right people on board with the right mentality, the right attitude, the right skills, we can go, we can go anywhere. We can do anything. So let me, let me turn this around and challenge you a little bit and kind of, there, there's a question wrapped in here somewhere. Let's, yeah. let's see how that's going to <laughs> we'll go. We'll find it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you listen to this, mm-hmm. right, um, and I think you're totally right, mm-hmm. like, you know, culture, vision, mm-hmm. leadership, hiring the great people. Yeah. That usually is something uh, that you hear from, you know, big co guy mm. or gal, mm-hmm. right? Which, which is at that point absolutely the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of that. You, I think you're totally right. Those are the big levers you actually mm-hmm. need to get right because otherwise you could just gonna hit a wall or ceiling or something like this, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But then you have kind of um, the the opposite, not the opposite, but kind of that also happens behind the scenes. And and I was just wondering with companies like you know WeWork and so mm-hmm. forth, um, there's always this. In, in B2B SaaS, you always have this, hey, you know, you did a thousand MQLs last year and now I need to do 5,000 MQLs. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, yeah. if you could yeah. do 6,000, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, or whatever yeah. version of that conversation, you know, let's yeah. forget about the budget side of this. And, like, how do you how do you go about this, right? Because it's yeah. when, you know, and I just wanted to kind of ask that question because mm. you might have solved this once or twice or three times mm. or whatever it might be. It's like, yeah. Yeah. how do you actually... You know, is 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 this whole thing just wrong by itself, and this shouldn't be done like this? Or, <laughs> hey, here's the three step recipe: how you always hit five thousand MQLs. I mean, how do you how do you go about this very like hands on, down and dirty kind of? How do you do that? I mean, this is this is where there's there's, there's no way that you can predict exactly that outcome. I mean, you you can have goals, and and I think we're getting luckily to a world now. It feels like we're normalizing a little bit, where I think. Founders, VCs, CEOs all realize that having these kind of like crazy goals only serves actually to do the opposite of what they intended. Like they think, oh, it's going to motivate people to go about. I actually mm. think it demotivates yeah. because it feels so unrealistic. 
And I've even worked in some companies where it's like the the, the growth that was expected is like insane. They're like, there's no way we're ever going to hit this growth, right? So all you do is like, you, you kind of try to bring the team together and you have this frantic nervous energy and you try to come up with solutions. But it's it's not do- done from the right mental mindset, I think. It's done out of fear a little bit, honestly. Mm. It's like we, we're being forced these kind of, I think, targets upon us. So the way I would do it, I mean, I think of it as, okay, in order to really get to predictability, which I think is the, the thing that most companies want these mm. days. Anyway, the last two years I've been spending my time as a kind of an advisor to companies all around the world, uh, US, UK, Germany, uh, Finland, Singapore. And the question is always, how do we uh, have predictability basically in our engine? Right? That's kind of what all, everybody mm. wants. And I think it's uh, it's not impossible, of course, right? Like there's lots of great, great ways to do so, but you have to be very methodical around the programs that you put out and you have to be very data-driven around it. So the way I would do it, I think, okay, well, you you operate at different levels. There are different programs that, that serve different purposes. I would say the way I think of it is you have a marketing budget, 80, maybe 85, maybe even 90% of it should be spent on things where you have a fairly predictable outcome because you have enough data to guide you. But you still need to leave room maybe 10, maybe 20% for things that are experimental because you don't have the insights yet or the data yet. The problem, I think, sometimes when, I, when I'm kind of guiding the teams and building strategies, every time we look at data, it always is kind of like historical, right? Mm. So, so if you're only relying on that, I think you're often, oftentimes missing the picture of what something could be. This is where I think the, the best programs are usually, in my mind, a mix of some data and a strong thesis, but also with courage and creativity. And I expect every marketer who rises up to a higher level, director or VP level, to have some of that courage to be able to put forth a thesis of what something could be or an idea or something. Um, So we can go and try it out. Whether that's a small one, a medium-sized one, or maybe even a, a really big one. But in order to actually build that kind of predictability into an engine, I think you have to have certainty, because you know, again, you're, at some point you also do have investors, a board, a mm-hmm. CEO. You have to be able to build like the playbook, the repeatable playbook. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend this much money on these channels with this message, going after these targets, these ICP, and this is what we expect to get back. And then, of course, if you're seeing something else in your results, then you can tweak and optimize. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's kind of two different games, I think. One is the tweaking and optimizing game, and you need a team who's really strong at that. That's why I'm also very clear when people say, what's my superpower? Well, of course, as part of a modern CMO, which I've been a few times, you need to be able to do that, but that's not where I get my joy or my superpower. I would always surround myself with people who are really data-driven and are really good at tweaking and optimizing, always finding out how you can make something slightly better. If it comes to actually being able to figure out the, the greenfield opportunities, I love spending my time on there, like what something could be, and then figuring out how do you go after that in a way that also becomes data-driven over time. Because so, every t- so everything to me starts with, you know, okay, what level are you operating at? What idea are you kind of going for? Uh, what is the goal of this? So for example, when we launched uh, Matterport for iPhone, mm-hmm. our goal was, because again, we didn't have any data, right? It's the first time we ever launched it. We said, okay, in the first month, we want to get 10,000 new signups, right? Again, more than we'd ever had as a business, we got 80,000 in the first week, right? It's like, so, so it's like, you, of course you put a thesis out there and so on, but, it, it, but then now suddenly we have data, then we can model over time how we expect to grow. Of course you see a bump from a launch and so on, and then it normalized a little bit. 
but but when you when you're doing something brand new, it's very hard, I think, to have an accurate prediction of something because it's never been done before. If it's something where you're again tweaking and optimizing, you're making something. Of course, you can have much more accurate predictions around what you're going to actually get out of it. I think. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> I very much resonate with that also because we we literally just had the conversation. Sometimes I feel like when you're talking with a founder of some company that have these grand ambitions. Yeah. You know, what I really hated was the whole, well, we just want you to come and build up paid. Yeah. And the reason usually I found that that, that was the logic was, yeah. well, I know we're going to put money in and fairly quickly yeah. we are going to get some results and it's yes. going to be fairly predictable, right? Yes, but, yes. Yeah. you know, you I, I think you're right. you got to have the courage. But part of it is also how you navigate that conversation, right? It's not mm-hmm. easy to go mm-hmm. to a founder CEO saying, hey, I have this greenfield idea. No. So I'm, I'm wondering like, and probably the, I don't know it, how it originated mm-hmm. this idea of going to the iPhone, but that must have been a pretty difficult conversation to navigate as a team. Hey, is this yes. a bet we're going to go and make? Yes. Um, and I think this is an interesting conversation because it speaks to the entire go-to-market leadership, really. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious kind of what happened like take us behind the curtain if you can and and, yeah. and talk a bit about how did you arrive to the point to kind of build that out? Well, I, th- I think it comes back to um, having a vision. So it starts, It starts. I think you have to have a vision for what the future could be um, and you have to have the courage and conviction to go for it. And again, when you get to that level, there's no roadmap to guide you. So you could also be wrong many times you are. But of course, if you have a thesis, you can kind of project where the future is going. Um, then... I think there's a pretty good logical step you can like build towards it. So for example, the, the Matterport for iPhones, great example. If you had gone and asked our commercial team, they would have shut this down. They're like, mm. it's going to cannibalize our sales for our 3D camera, you know. Uh, what if the quality is crap, you know, and people lose faith in us and so on. There's lots of reasons why you shouldn't do this, right? It's a huge engineering effort. It's a huge risk on the go-to-market side, right? What if it doesn't work? What if it tanks the brand? What if it cannibalizes our sales? All these different re- reasons. But we also knew that if our ultimate vision was, again, to make every space accessible to every person in the world, we had to remove the barriers to, to be able to do that, right? And the other play that maybe the, the sales team didn't see, because, again, they're focused more tactically and on, on the current opportunity ahead, is there's so much value in us getting the data around all this space, all these different spaces that we collect. So the more that people would actually, you know, film a, a apartment or a house or something, it will give us so much insight about the physical world. And we can then use that data to come up with new products in the future. Maybe we come up with a, a, a home redesign product or something, right? So, so the best, the most, the, the homes in the world that sell for the most, they do this in a kitchen, they do this in a bathroom, they do this in a living room and so on, right? So there's so much insight you can get because we, we would map out the whole physical space. But I don't think that's obvious to somebody who's out there on the front line selling every single day. So you have to have the courage and the conviction, I think, from the very top, whether that's the CTO, the CEO, the founder, whoever it is, on where the future is going to go, even if it's going to be disrupted. I mean, the classical uh, Clayton Christensen, uh, I think, innovator's dilemma, mm-hmm. if, if you don't think about disrupting yourself, somebody else will probably come along and do so, right? So you always have to, I think, be a couple of steps ahead. And so the way that I think then you get people on board to that, whether that's, again, a small thing like me going and doing a marketing program or a new sales program or building something brand new that could disrupt your whole business. The way I've always been successful with it is you go around and you share it one-on-one and you talk to people about it one-on-one. And mo- every time people bring it up in a group meeting, it always yeah. defaults to the negative. Yeah. It always gets shut down, right? So the best thing by far to do is to like figure out who you're talking to 
And I always think of it, there's three le different levels. If you're talking to somebody who works for you, you speak about it differently. If you speak to somebody who is your peer, you speak differently. And yeah. if you speak to somebody who's above you, right? Maybe it's your board or your boss or something. So first figure out, like, what's their personality? What's their mental model? What do they care about? So, for example, again, I spend most of my time in marketing. When I go talk to a CFO, it's very different than when I talk to somebody who's the head of product or if I talk to a CEO who's very visionary and excited and so on. You have to kind of just modulate. But I've always found that my ideas usually get gets, uh, pulled through if I get build a coalition one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. And I've never, I've never once, or maybe I'm doing it wrong, but I've never once seen it happen in a group meeting, the first, the first kind of initial. Yeah. Uh, once you have enough momentum, if then... If I can get the CEO on board, the CFO, maybe my team, and then we go in and into a big room and we present it, and there's enough like excitement about it, then it'll go through because you have enough momentum. But if it's the first time people hear about it, it always it's <laughs> kind of like in the, in the Senate where you have a whip, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. In the votes, <laughs> making right. sure that. No, but I was I was about yeah. to say right. Some people, and yeah. I, by the way, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, I really like this uh, team meeting default no. Right. Yeah. You're totally right. You're totally right yeah, about this. Yeah. But some people would kind of call this approach almost like politicking, right? Yeah. To a degree, yeah, maybe, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So um, I think that's that's pretty interesting. The one one burning question, because like I'm like a you know recovering CRO, yeah, right? Um, and um, and yeah, totally. Like this could have tanked the brand. This mm. could have tanked your bottom funnel. I mean, did you eventually get the get the buy-in of the VP of sales or was it like, a, this is going to kill us? And then, you know what actually was my idea? Like, <laughs> well, how, did, how did this actually work out? Because at some yeah. point, obviously the CEO probably said like, yes, Robin, we're going to yes. do what Robin said. Um, but uh, did you get the sales guy on board or a girl? I don't know. We, we got the CRO, he came on board. But 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 he was he was the most skeptical, but he got on board anyway because we had enough conversations and he, yeah. he was inside the, the tent around the launch plans and when it was going to release and our projections and board comes so he was more inside it but i think if you went down in the organization yeah. there was a lot of skepticism yeah. a lot of skepticism and even from even from some of the marketing folks i'm like what if this doesn't work out yeah. <laughs> can we do one layer kind of almost deeper on this so kind of you built this thing yeah. um there was a vision around it you aligned the org great yes um and now let's effing go yeah. um what, how did you, how did, you know, what was the splash like? Kind of what was mm. the launch like? Can you maybe kind of talk yeah. a little bit about this? Because <laughs> I think this is, this is where people then sometimes go, okay, 80,000 signups. Yeah, we just I mean, skipped over that part. How, <laughs> how many, how many billions of money did That's you, you know, break. push out, right? Yeah. Kind of how did, how did that come together? So it came together very quickly. Uh, we launched during COVID. So it was a very hard launch as well, right? Again, I, a lot of times when it comes to creative stuff, I think it's easier in person, but we made it work. So um, we, we ended up hiring an agency to do our launch video. And it's the same agency who does uh, the videos for Apple's launches. There you mm. go. Right. So we spent a f couple hundred thousand dollars on mm. this video, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but we knew with this, we wanted this to be the centerpiece of our launch, like really high quality, because we had to figure out uh, magical and creative ways to showcase something that's honestly kind of nerdy and technical. Yeah. It really is, right? It's not like something that's obvious to most people. So how do we showcase this? Uh, and then, so we hired this agency. They then had their uh, couple of film studios around the world. We ended up shooting in, in Vietnam, all mm. remotely. As I, I remember seeing behind the scenes people with the masks on. It was just it was weird. But it, it worked out. So we did a, an awesome video. That was the biggest expense for, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, then we put a lot of effort into, I would say, our PR strategy. Like, what is the story that we're trying to tell? 
both in terms of the which channels we wanted that to hit on. So PR was a big important part, thought leadership coming out with different pieces of content that wasn't so much about us, but what was possible if this was actually, you know, if people did this. Um, we came out with lots of digital campaigns, you know, like very tactical ones, like uh, especially on YouTube. YouTube was a great channel for us actually, mm. uh, where we do like different versions of our ad, ad like 10 second versions, 15 second, 30 second versions. That, mm. But they were all morally call to action. There was more in like, as fluffy as like the, the launch video was very like, oh, imagine a world of this. But that was ads or that was like organic video stuff? A ads. That we did, ads. We did okay. lots of yeah. ads. Yeah, lots of ads. But we did a mix, right? I mean, I mm -hmm. think, I mean, when you, when you think about a good marketing strategy, it's usually uh, a mix of paid, mm -hmm. uh, organic, and then also community building. Mm -hmm. The other thing we also had going for us, we had a strong community. And uh, we, we also prepped them ahead of time. Right? We had like a Facebook group of like 10,000 people. Mm -hmm. They're very vocal. I mean, a lot of times it was mostly bitching about the technology wasn't <laughs> working or this camp, the expensive camera. So trying to get them on board and get like super users to come in and like be our evangelists also kind of yeah. worked really well. But, but honestly, I joined in March of uh, 2020, right during COVID, and we launched this on May the 4th, 2020, so about six weeks later. It was like a super fast mm -hmm. thing, right? So when I came in, again, just to be clear, the, the technology uh, was being built, but it honestly wasn't really ready. The, the goal was to launch this at the end of 2020, but then COVID happened, and we're like, this is our moment. Everyone's stuck at home. We got to release this frick faster, even if it's not perfect, let's go, right? And so this is also another lesson. Mm -hmm. Like I think so many companies, they wait for the perfect moment, right? Mm -hmm. The technology to be perfect, the campaign to be perfect, the moment to be perfect. You're like, let's go. Uh, we want to get this out as quickly as we can because everyone's stuck at home. They're just like, they're bored, right? We could see it like TikTok skyrocketing and Instagram <laughs> skyrocketing. People need shit to do. Yeah. Uh, right, let's give them something to do. They have their phone, they're sitting on their phone. Let's, let's release this. Um, but it was a bit risk because the technology really wasn't, fully mature yet because mm. it's, it's again this is lots of deep uh data work that has to happen in order for this to be successful. so so we rallied the team together i think from from moment to, from conception to launch was about four weeks or so crazy so I, yeah that's no, crazy no, no. that's also a lot of pressure even on the agency it was it was super, it was super, super stressful but it was also honestly it rallies people right again so, so sometimes i think you know when i think of all the launches i've done at salesforce when i let chatter there for example mm. like that ended up becoming one of the most successful products that Salesforce ever had. At that point in time, I'm sure now they've mm -hmm. had many, many, many more. But yes, it's super stressful, but it's also these career-defining moments, I think. you know. Mm -hmm. And this is also the story I would tell to the team is that these are the moments that you look back on, like that you, you do something that you're proud of. When you go to your next job, it's, these are the things you talk about. You don't talk about me putting together a white paper that mm -hmm. I put out there behind a gated <laughs> form, right? You say... I launched this here that changed the trajectory of the company. But it's know? so funny, like the whole point on setting a really short time frame for work. Yeah. It's just when I even look back at the stuff I've done, that's usually the best things yeah. is when you had almost no time, period. That's and when you had too much time, it yeah. was kind of almost the opposite. The pendulum swung to the other side. Taking and notes became, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. And it was kind of, you know, problematic actually to a yes. degree. So I think that's pretty I'm cool. writing down Mikkel, <sighs> arrow, faster. Yeah. Exclamation mark! Exclamation mark! Exclamation mark! But Michael, you're you're so right. I've I've had a few instances, you know, uh, in the last couple of years where we've had these like big projects, and we're like, okay, in six months we're gonna yeah. launch this to the world, and it just kind of drifts yeah. and drifts, and it kind of every time I check in on status, I'm like, oh, not much is happening. <laughs> I think it's also the fact that it sometimes takes pressure off. If you yes. have if you have a tight deadline and you know, and something slips, you're kind of also okay with it. No. 
yeah. right? If you if it's the other way around, you had six months and yeah. what you didn't get the blog post done. Yeah. What have you been doing for all this time? <laughs> I'm like, I'm I'm kind of proactively sad for all the marketers <laughs> that are working with and or for for our listeners yeah. that are basically going to get that clip. Yeah, you know? oh, we're going we're gonna, we're gonna to get, so, get so much hate. Yeah. We're going to get so much like, oh, like, oh, hate. We need to watch the You know what? What would yeah. actually be really good yeah. if yeah. it was one month. No, know? I mean, the, the title of this episode is going to be Don't Share This With Your Marketing Team. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You know what? This is, this, this is one of the things with Adam Newman. You know, I guess... He did lots of things that he wasn't great at, but he, he was really good at rallying the teams. He would always say, in a lot of these meetings, uh, we can we work our superpowers getting shit done. We mm. can do in a week that most companies can't even do in a year, right? Mm. And like, and we do, and with a lot of it was not perfect, and you know, it was like, when you look back, it's like a little embarrassing, but we did get a lot of stuff done, yeah. right? Mm. So I think, I mean, one of the things that I've kind of worked a lot on for the last couple of years is kind of what are the characteristics of high-performing teams? Mm. Something I'm super passionate about. And I think there are five. Number one is everything starts with clarity. If you don't have clarity around what you're doing, you're going to be miles off in terms of the goal you're trying to hit or the end result and so on. So you start everything starts with clarity for the project and then for the teams themselves and for the individuals working on it. That actually also, I think, gives a lot of satisfaction for the people working on things. So clarity is, is absolutely number one. Mm. Without that, you're going to be miles off. Number two is really around focus. So once you have clarity that we need to go do this, launch in two days, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, focus is the next thing because everyone is busy. Everyone has a gazillion things, you know. But the best teams in the world, they figure out how to say no to a lot of stuff. And it's not always easy, especially I think when you're first starting out in your career or maybe you're like a mid-level manager, saying no can be really challenging. But the best teams in the world, they know how to say no or they get the manager support to say no. So I spend a lot of my time saying to my team all the time, what can I help clarify for you so you can focus on the things that matter? So that's number two. Number three it's really around accountability. Having a high sense of self-accountability, team accountability, and overall accountability to the project itself. I think a lot of times I see managers or new leaders being afraid to like probe a little bit and 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 because they feel like it, it, they come across as judgy or they're giving critical feedback, but there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, uh, what's the status on this? Mm -hmm. uh, when can we have it? When we, can I see a, a, a version of it tonight before you know you end the day or something? It's like, oh, because people are maybe a little too friendly. But actually, I think if you do it right, if, you, if, you're, if you're skilled enough in this conversation, you can come across as, hey, I'm here to help you. If you're not succeeding, it's, it's on me. You know, I want to be able to help you actually get the resources or skills to, to be successful. That's my job as a leader. Uh, number four, coming back to is around urgency and, and, mm -hmm. and tenacity. Like I think the best teams in the world, high-performing teams, have a strong sense of not sitting still, not being satisfied until they've delivered. Like Not just like taking for granted, but they, they, they chase things down. They work until it's kind of done, right? It's not to mean that you have to do that all the time because you mm -hmm. don't want to burn out, but having a sense of pride in being able to deliver. And then number five, the fifth, I think, characteristic of high-performing teams is really around being also able to recognize the good work that each other do. There's way too little of it, but it's oftentimes the things that motivate people because it sets the bar higher next time. When you get positive feedback about what the work somebody has done and you really truly recognize, just like in a, in a superficial way, um, then they, they take ownership of that and they want to do better next time. You know, They take pride in the work that they're doing. Most people want to do good work, right? But they also want to be recognized for it. And if you just let all this busy work, incredible urgencies, mm -hmm. urgent stuff fly by without recognizing the work anybody has done to get there, I think you're going to lose a lot of goodwill and motivation in the team as well. 
I think this is a perfect way to end the episode. Yeah, I mean, I was like, we talked about being a modern husband and career <laughs> development, and we kind of we were all over the map in this all episode, over. which is great. Even right. before we talked about the equipment here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like we ticked, <laughs> your we your, ed your editing is going to be all over the place. Yeah. All the boxes. <laughs> um, Wonderful. No, but this was great. Um, thanks so much for so actually being the I guess the first guest physically being really? in the studio with us. That that was different. I hope it's also yeah. different in a good way for the listeners. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I mean, we are listening to you. You said like you don't like remote so much, so we, yeah. we moved everything around. <laughs> We moved everything around to accommodate, and I think we achieved this pretty well. I th and just to be clear, yeah. I, I do like remote, but for certain things, you know. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't want this to be a viral clip where I'm like, shit, Robin does like yeah. I'm actually even remissing, investing in a few companies that like focus on enabling remote work. Because I think there's no doubt this is the future we're going into, but how do you then do it in a way that makes people feel a sense of purpose and belong? That's mm. the thing I worry about remote yeah, work. Yeah. We'll, we'll clip this in there. <laughs> <laughs> Robin, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks thank for you. joining. Thanks, Thanks everyone for listening. Bye. Bye. See ya.